now have been uh, making a slow progress through the Acts of the Apostles over the last uh, seven or eight years. And um, the first sermon I did in this series was actually from this very passage. And um, I've dealt with the first half of it uh, very, very differently last November. And we're going to do the second half of it now. Now, um, it's three years, about three years after the crucifixion, Saul, who was a Jew born in modern Turkey, was converted and he changed his name to Paul. And Acts 9.15 tells us that Paul has been set apart by the risen Lord Jesus Christ as his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, to their kings and to the people of Israel. And with Barnabas, Paul is a teacher at the church of Antioch in Syria for five years, where after a prophecy by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey in AD 48. And the first missionary journey, which is described in Acts 13.1 to Acts 14.28, is in Turkey, takes place in Turkey, and it covers a distance of about 1,200 miles over 18 months or so. And that's Paul and Barnabas. Then there's a second missionary journey, which covers a distance of about 2,800 miles. And it takes over three years. And it was a circular journey, like the first one, starting and ending in Antioch in Syria. And that's described in Acts 15, verse 40 to Acts 18, 22. And Paul undertook that journey with Silas, Luke, who was the author of Acts, and Timothy. And that occurred AD 50 to AD 52. And starting in the spring uh, of AD 53, Paul is on his third missionary journey, and this covers about 2,500 miles, 1,300 of them overland, and about 1,200 over, overseas by sea. And it took about four years, Again, it started in Antioch in Syria, as described in Acts 18, uh, 23. And that on the screen is over on the middle on this right-hand side. And they covered all this distance here, walking. And Paul first goes and visits the churches that he's established previously. So Paul, on his third missionary journey, it's AD 53... And he walks with his companions from Antioch in Syria across what was the Roman province of Asia, what we now call Turkey, and he visits the churches he's set up on his previous missionary journeys. And this third missionary journey, as I say, it starts... Uh, uh, in AD 53, and it ends, as described in Acts 21.16, probably in May AD 57. Unlike his first two missionary journeys, Paul does not plant new churches. He just revisits where he's been before, strengthening the churches. And as I said, if, if it's first here, Galatia, and then Phrygia here, and then he goes over to Ephesus. Now, a year earlier, about a year earlier in Acts 18.20, uh, 
we see described Paul's flying visit through Ephesus and um, where he preached to the Jews in the synagogue and they wanted him to spend more time with them explaining that Jesus is the Messiah. But Paul couldn't do it then and he said, God willing, I will come back. And here he is back at the end of AD 53 in Ephesus. And Paul was to spend about three years in Ephesus. It, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, probably in AD 56, and 2 Corinthians about six months later. And Paul says, as we've read from 1 Corinthians 16, 8 to 9, he says, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened for me. And there are many who oppose me. So Ephesus is a key city. Uh, I don't know if you can see it here, but this is a picture of the, the ruins of Ephesus. It's a key city. It's a capital of Asia Minor. Uh, it's a key city to the Romans 2,000 years ago. It was a city of great trade and commerce. It was very rich and prosperous. It was the centre of a religion, an occult pagan religion, and all the vile practices that go with it. Ephesus holds the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was one of the most widely venerated of the ancient Greek deities. Her Roman equivalent is Diana, and that is why the word Diana is used in the New King James. But, but in the area, in Turkey itself, in Ephesus itself, the god was known as Artemis. And uh, the, the, the New King James is quite a quaint translation in this part of the Bible. Um, and, uh, but what the men actually, uh, the, the god who was actually worshipped in Ephesus was Artemis. And it was the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And last time in November, we, we saw the, uh, the beginning of this great and effective door. Because when Paul, that was opened for Paul's work in Ephesus, when he arrived in Ephesus, he met a group of 12 men, Acts 19 verse 1, who had been disciples of John the Baptist, who had been taught 25 years earlier by John the Baptist that there was a coming judgment uh, and that every one of us was going to be subject to that judgment. And we're going to be held account for our lives by God, our judge. And these disciples, these 12 men, they, uh, disciples of John the Baptist, they knew that their lives didn't please God. And so they had publicly repented of their sin and been baptized by John. And these men knew that John the Baptist taught that there was one coming after him. Uh, who would take away their individual sin. And so Paul preached about this one who was coming after John the Baptist. He's preached about the atoning life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. And these men repented and believed and were baptised into the name of Jesus Christ. And seven months ago, I asked, didn't I, if you knew these truths yourself, did you, do you know there is a coming judgment? Do you know that every action, every thought, every word, and every inaction that we should have done will be brought into judgment 
by God and that we will have to personally answer for our every breath. Do you know that your life is not good enough for this judgment? And have you turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ? Well, it's seven months on since I asked those questions and many sermons have been preached from this pulpit about the glorious Son of God in that time. Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? And have you turned towards the Lord Jesus Christ? These men did. And by preaching this message, by Paul preaching this message first in the local synagogue and then in the nearby lecture hall of Tyrannus, Paul built up a church of believers who were a mix of converted Jews and converted Gentile pagans. And we saw in the first uh, 20 verses of Acts 19, back in September, uh, back in November, we saw that the Holy Spirit validated Paul's teachings by miracles. Many were healed of a wide range of diseases and many evil spirits were driven out. And Paul's teaching about Jesus became famous in the city of Ephesus and the surroundings. And so seven unsaved Jewish brothers are attempting to exercise a demon-possessed man by name-dropping the names of Jesus and Paul to the evil spirit. But you can't just name-drop Jesus and expect that to be some sort of talisman. That's like them producing crosses in vampire films. It's of no use at all, is it? You can't name drop Jesus. You've either got a personal relationship with him or you don't know him at all. And the evil spirit in this demon-possessed man acknowledges the names and authority of Jesus and Paul. And then he questions these seven unsaved Jews. And he discovers that they lack any spiritual authority of their own. And these men are lucky because they barely escape with their lives. They're left beaten, bloody and naked by this demon. That's what we looked at last time. And uh, news of this incident spreads wild, widely uh, through Ephesus and the surrounding Area And we see three things happen as a result of this incident uh, where the seven uh, men are beaten up by one evil spirit in a possessed man. First of all, we see personal growth as believers cast off their hindrances, verses 18 to 19. As news of the incident spreads, the newly converted Christians in Ephesus are emboldened to publicly state their faith in Christ and to destroy the pagan religious artifacts that they used to use but have still hung on to. And we see these believers casting off what was holding them back. And I challenge us then to do the same. Can we cast off whatever is holding us back in our Christian walk and follow Christ wholeheartedly? In Ephesus 2,000 years ago, 
that the Christian church came out of the shadows as the Christians outed themselves publicly to the pagan population. So we see personal growth as believers cast off hindrances. And secondly, we see public growth. Acts 19.20, which I read to you, it says, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. As Paul says to the Ephesian elders later on in Acts, in verses 20, in Acts 20, verse 20, he, Paul had made a public and a house-to-house -house proclamation of the gospel. The area was well evangelized and the church grew in the city and the surroundings. So we see public growth as well. And thirdly, we see that the net result is the church in Ephesus becomes the number three Christian church in the world after the church in Jerusalem and Antioch. So th this time in Ephesus is a significant part of Paul's ministry. Three years, it's the longest time he's spent anywhere in the, in the previous 10-year period. And it's a time of much fruit in that many believe. In fact, the, you know, the seven churches of Asia, which are mentioned uh, in the book of Revelation, the seven churches that get the letters from the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, they're all located in this general area of Paul's work during his stay in Ephesus. And very probably, Paul and all his companions were instrumental in the establishment of these seven churches. So verse 21, Paul's established a strong and vibrant church, not just in Ephesus, but in the region. And what does he do? He plans to move on. And he sends a couple of brothers ahead to prepare for him. But verse 23, opposition comes. A great disturbance about the way. What's the way? The way is what Christians were called. They were first called Christians in Antioch, we're told, earlier in Acts. Christian meaning little Christ. It was a sort of insult. But they were more generally known as the way, the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus Christ, who was, of course, the way, the truth, and the life. So, let's have a look a bit more about what's happening in uh, Ephesus, the temple in Ephesus, the great temple of Artemis, Diana, as she's called by the, her Roman name in this uh, version of the Bible, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was built about 300 BC, and it was the largest Greek temple then in, ex in, its, in existence. Now, this here is a model of the temple. Uh, I took this picture in the uh, museum in Ephesus, and it shows what the temple uh, was like. And here, this picture on the right-hand side shows what we've got there today. The temple in Paul's day had 127 columns and each column was 60 feet high. And on the right hand side, you can see this reconstructed column. They've reconstructed it from the materials left over from the old temple. Um, it was massive. I don't know if you can see here, but uh, that's Pat and that's me. Right? Uh, somebody on the bus very kindly took the picture for me. And uh, you see the scale of these columns and the size of the temple. It was truly uh, 
a great and magnificent structure dedicated to the worship of an idol. And the idol was the goddess Artemis. And Artemis was a goddess of chastity and fertility and festivals, festivities were held during the whole month of May each year to celebrate the birthday of the goddess. And the city's population rose from something like a quarter of a million to about a million people as uh, people on pilgrimages visit, you know, from the whole of Turkey and from uh, wider regions came to the city. Now, this was big business. This was normally big business. If we had a million visitors here to Liverpool next week, that would be massive business. The hotels would be bursting. The restaurants would be full. Everybody would be making money. The shops would be selling stuff hand over fist. And, you know, food, lodgings, trinkets, and it was the same for Ephesus. But the growth of Christianity was beginning to have an impact on the number of visitors to the city. And so the silversmith Demetrius, he acts, he's been hurt in the pocket. So he acts and he makes an appeal to his fellow tradesmen. And it's an appeal to their pockets and to their pride. And, he's, and it was a very potent uh, appeal and very much to the point. He says in 19, Acts 1925, uh, he, he called the, the workers together uh, in related trades and he said, you know my friends that we receive a good income from this business and you see and hear, hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He said that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he's making this appeal to the tradesmen. So, and he's telling them, it's not just going to impact on me, the silversmith who's making the little idols that look like the, 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 the statue we've got in the temple, but everybody's going to lose out. If you own a boarding house, you're going to lose out. If you're selling food, you're going to lose out. If you're uh, a restauranteur, you're going to lose out. Everybody's going to lose out. And um, Demetrius, you know, he doesn't deny the truth of what Paul is saying, but he argues that the effect is detrimental to the people in the city. The fame of the city and the fortune of the tradesmen will suffer if Paul has his way and all people become Christian converts. And so there's a riot. The people, it says verse 28, are furious and go up in arms and they start chanting and the city is thrown into chaos. Now this is a huge disturbance and everybody is caught up in it. And they throng into the great open-air theatre uh, in Ephesus, as it says in verse 29, the amphitheatre. Now, many of you will have been to the Echo Arena. It can fit in about 11 or 12,000 people. And uh, some of us perhaps have been to the O2 in London, which fits 20,000 spectators. The MEN Arena, so recently the victim of that, Attacked can seat 21,000. 
Ephesus sits 25,000 people. This is a huge amphitheatre and it was full of the population of the city at festival time shouting and jeering and on the verge of a riot. Paul's companions are seized, but they're not allowed to speak. Paul himself, for his own safety, has to be restrained from going into the theatre. Verse 32, the tumult was so great that many involved didn't even know what it was about. Isn't that it, the way with crowds? People just get carried along with the enthusiasm of it, herd instinct, and they acted just as crowds and mobs do. And soon the whole city was in uproar. Verse 32, just look at the confusion. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. I don't know if you know about an amphitheatre, but um, if we just step back there. When, the, you know, actors or whatever are on the stage here, their voice can go to the whole of the amphitheatre without needing modern electrical amplification. But the opposite is also true. If you have a lot of people here making a noise, it goes bang down to the centre. And you can imagine the deafening cacophony inflicted upon anybody who tries to stand up in the centre of that amphitheatre and uh, quieten the mob and speak. So, as I say, some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33, there's intimidation and threats of violence to those who would gainsay the pagans. How different this is from Christianity. And they were de denying any chance to appeal to reason. And they were preventing the opposition from even speaking. Alexander, uh, who was pushed to the front, was probably the, the coppersmith, who is mentioned in 1 Timothy, did Paul uh, a lot of grief. But even he is not allowed to speak because the pagans recognise that as a Jew, he is a monotheistic person. And so in principle should be against uh, gods and goddesses of the pagan pantheon. And verse 34, I mean, if you just look, look how volatile and how easily manipulated are those who are lost and ruled by the doctrines of demons. And verse 34, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. You can imagine them stamping their feet, clapping their hands. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In verses 34 to 41, we have after the hours of chanting, eventually the city clerk placates the mob by telling them what they want to hear. That the fame of the goddess, and by implication their trade, is safe since it is so well established in the city and the world. And so the crowd disperses, especially when the fact of the courts and authorities are mentioned. So Christianity has had an impact on that city. And as a result of the people realising they're going to be hurt in their pocket and in their pride, there's a riot. So how should we engage with false religions. What do we learn from this passage? Well, we learn the potent power of uh, Jesus Christ over demons and the power of the preaching of the word when the Holy Spirit is present, causing men and women to repent. 
in large numbers. But what else do we learn? Well, we learn how to engage with false religions, don't we? Well, first of all, how not to deal with false religions. Uh, last weekend, Pat and I were with the Christian Answer Group in Hyde Park, in London. And on the Saturday, we were doing open-air preaching. I wasn't actually preaching at that moment. Another guy called Edwin was preaching. And three young Muslim lads came into heckle. And they grabbed the visual aids. They blasphemed Jesus. Not only that, but they used loud, coarse, filthy language to talk about him and said things which I wouldn't repeat at all. And they wouldn't accept rebuke either over the way they spoke in public at the tops of the voices, nor the fact that they were saying these things in front of ladies. This was no recommendation to accept Islam, was it? That's not how we should deal with people. Jesus says, doesn't he, Matthew 10, 16, I am sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. When we encounter false religions, we must be as shrewd as snakes and as harmless as doves. Let us not act abusively when we engage false religions. Rather, let us bring light to bear that rev by revealing and explaining Bible truth to the lost. Now, Paul doesn't do that in the middle of the riot. He waits until the riot's over. He did it before the riot and he did it after the riot. We have to remember, as Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. So how should we deal with false religions? Verse 37, well, we see the wisdom of Paul and the Ephesian church as practiced with the, with the pagans. They were blameless before the pagans regarding their temple and goddess. The city clerk, an independent person, says in verse 37, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. So how do we deal with false religions? First of all, we treat them respectfully, don't we? Maybe you consider them your enemies. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Don't blaspheme their gods. Don't desecrate their temples. Don't do anything that they would see as sacrilegious. We don't need to make an open and calamous attack on these people. Yep. We don't, we don't want to give them cause for legal redress against us. We need to obey the law. We don't want to be like perhaps those Buddhists, uh, in Buddhist priests or monks in Sri Lanka who were damaging and even burning the church, I think, weren't they? We need to not only treat them respectfully, but we need, we need to tell the truth. Now, certainly Paul will have reiterated in Ephesus what he previously said in Athens, which is recorded in Acts chapter 17, where he asserts the nature of God and draws conclusions from it. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That's what Paul had said in Athens, just 
several months beforehand. I'm sure he said it again here in um, Ephesus. Temples don't mean anything to a God. And verse, in Acts 17, 25, God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Does he? He's made us. Now, insult, insults won't defeat pagans, especially on their home ground. In Zechariah 4, 6, we're reminded, it's not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And the Holy Spirit has given Paul wisdom to address the follies of a man-made religion by declaring the truth, that they are not gods which are made by human hands. How can a trinket, say this, be worshipped as a god if it's been made by human hands in a little factory somewhere? But that's what Demetrius and his fellows were peddling. And Paul says things like, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, as Paul says in Acts 17.29. God, the divine being, is not an image made by human design or skill. So we treat those involved in a false religion respectfully and we tell them the truth. We, de we tell them a truth and we draw conclusions from it so they can see the errors of their ways. Now I want to remind you of something. In case you've forgotten, Christianity is countercultural. We are distinct from society now, just as they were back then. We don't live in a Christian land. We have never lived in a Christian land. Christianity always has been, is, and always will be counter-cultural. Christianity is always battling against the times. Some people are bemoaning the fact that, oh, it's not like the good old days when this was a Christian country. This has never been a Christian country. It's been Christianized to some extent, but it's never been Christian. This is nothing new. Just look at the history of the church, either in Britain or abroad, this century or any other century. Our job as the church is to bring the light of the gospel and the life of Christ to those around us. We must engage with society, this society that is dying. We must engage with society and we mustn't be afraid that it will push back against us because it will claim that it is us that's in the wrong, just as these silversmiths of old did with Paul. Their doctrine was the doctrine of demons. It is no different today. Without Christianity, people in this land don't live in a vacuum. Just because they haven't got Christianity doesn't mean they're living in a spiritual vacuum. Something else has filled it, has filled their minds and their lives and drives them. This is an atheistic and godless society. And it enslaves mankind and it leaves it in darkness. Without Christianity, people are not living in a vacuum. 
Now, we're in the middle of a general election at the moment, aren't we? And, I, and I've read and I've heard it said that politicians mustn't just badmouth the opposition candidates, but they must make a case for their own policies. I think that's, I think that's a true statement. It's not sufficient to badmouth the opposition, is it, in political circles? We, too, as Christians, must offer people a choice. We must put our case persuasively. We must proclaim Christ. That's our job. Not to bemoan not living in the 1950s anymore, when it was a bit easier as a Christian uh, in the land. We must proclaim Christ because Christ lifted up. What does he say in John? He will do what? If you lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, he will draw all men to himself. And that will liberate society. That will liberate mankind one person by one person as individual after individual comes to a saving and personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to ask, do we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ sufficiently? Do we preach the resurrection enough? Do we preach it clearly? Are we known for asserting that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's a truth that doubly cuts the ground from underneath atheists and atheism. Because the resurrection is declared to be an act of God. It was God who raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the end of atheism. If we proclaim the resurrection, atheism hasn't got a leg to stand on because God raised Jesus from the dead. And as Peter says in Acts 2.36, the resurrection establishes that Jesus is the Lord God of the Old Testament. Well, that kills atheism as well. And of course, the resurrection, as Paul says in 1.15, it guarantees the forgiveness of our sins. As well as preaching Christ, his death and resurrection, we should be proclaiming the uniqueness of the person of Christ. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, these are not politically correct statements, but they are the truth in the word of God. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And Peter, speaking of Jesus in Acts 4.12, says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Do we clearly proclaim Christ? Do we clearly show that Christ claimed to be uniquely the one mediator between man and God? So Christianity is countercultural. We must engage with society. We must proclaim Christ. And we must proclaim distinctive Christian truth. And this is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it, with society? Do we preach that we are made in the image of God? Do we preach the value and dignity of each and every human life since we are made in the image of the glorious eternal God? Just think about this. Every murder, 
Every suicide bomb, every terrorist attack tries to say that all those killed and maimed are of no value. It does. Because it's, to some of these people, it's their gateway to paradise. So it doesn't matter who, how many you kill in God's sight. But that is not true. We declare on the authority of the Bible that each one of us is valuable to God. Because for the love of that individual, God the Father sent the pure, spotless, glorious, eternal Son into this world to defeat sin and death. We must not let the world hijack what true religion is. Those who truly believe in God, a God who created mankind, would never kill one of those made in God's glorious image. 1 John 3.15 it says, you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That's a clear statement from the Bible, isn't it? No murderer has eternal life residing in him. We need to promote this truth. It's the antidote to some of the philosophy beside what's motivating people in this sad and fallen world. It's no good, you know, some individuals asserting the greatness of God one minute and then destroying God's greatest creation the next minute. That is killing another human being. That's hypocrisy. 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God but who hates his brother or sister is a liar. That's a good truth, isn't it? For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Isn't that a powerful truth to proclaim? Those who do not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Committing murder is an act only of those who neither know nor love God. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbour. Isn't Christianity a distinctive religion? Isn't it running counter to what we hear on the TV and read in our newspapers? We have distinctive Christian truth. We must preach distinctive Christian truth. What did Jesus say? It's recorded in all the Gospels, but in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and that we should love our neighbour as we love ourselves. This is Christianity. This is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the sanctity of human life is established by our being made in the image of a holy, righteous God. Do we preach the sanctity of human life, particularly at both its ends, as well as the middle? Do we preach that the unborn child is valuable since it's made in the image of the eternal God? Do we preach that the dementia-ridden senior citizen is valuable since they are made in the image 
of the eternal God. In some ways, to me, it seems we may have lost the first battle over the unborn, but let us engage with the world about end-of-life care. And let's set a standard for that care that restores visible dignity to these individuals. Humanism is pernicious since it reduces human life to the level of a bacteria. You're as likely to have evolved as the bacteria and you're both the result of millions of years of chance is what the humanists claim. And that allows human life to be abused or wiped out just to satisfy a whim or to increase a bank balance. Christianity rather is ennobling of human life and brings hope for both now and eternity. Proclaim distinctive Christian truth is what we must, must do. And teaching about the origin and end of the universe is not just idle speculation, you know. It drives the philosophy behind our views of the origin and purpose and end of humanity. Do we preach there is a purpose to this universe? Do we preach there is a purpose to this world and to our lives? Do you know the judgment of mankind when Christ returns, when each and every individual's every thought, word and deed are brought into scrutiny, establishes the meaning and purpose to our life? Because we are to live a life that pleases and glorifies him, the Son of God. Why is there so much depression in this world? Because so many have been taught and they have accepted that ultimately there's no meaning to life. No wonder they're depressed. According to the world, they're the random survivors of the abortion clinic and they're competing in a pointless rat race until taken by the debilitations of dementia. That's all the world's got to offer if we're... If, if, if we live in a godless universe that's here by chance. We need to prove these people wrong by showing them life in Christ, life to the full, life in Christ and for Christ in this world and eternal life with Christ in the glory of the next world. That's what we should be proclaiming. The gospel is different to the world's philosophy and practice and it will have a transforming effect on society. Just as Paul engaged with the society of his day, we must engage with the society of our day and preach the distinctive truths of the gospel. The gospel will transform society. It transformed pagan Ephesus. It has transformed you and me, and what a job that was, broken as we are. It can transform Liverpool, the United Kingdom, and this needy world. Yes, there will be intense persecution, because wherever the gospel is effectively preached, there is always opposition and a backlog, backlash, but we must preach Christ. Christianity is reasonable, it's rational, it's good, it's wholesome, and it's based upon historic 
truth, principally the historic truth that Jesus Christ is bodily raised from the dead. He alone will rescue from the penalty of sin. He alone will transform your life, bring you peace with God, give you purpose in this life and true pleasure in living this life in preparation for a glorious eternity with him. Put your faith in him. Amen.